Kia ora koutou and welcome to Tahuhu Korero, a podcast and blog that shares the history work of students and staff at the University of Auckland and the aim of improving the accessibility and inclusivity of the study of history. Kia ora koutou and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Michaela Salloway and today we're talking about a topic that is incredibly important in New Zealand, but in my opinion, many people seem to misunderstand and that is Te Tiriti o Waitangi, or the Treaty Waitangi. With Waitangi Day having just passed, Catherine and I thought it appropriate that we would do a segment on this in order to possibly dispel some myths, but with the overall goal of encouraging students and academics to see the need for us to understand the full history of our country. Joining me today is one of our esteemed lecturers at the university, who taught me for my New Zealand history course, History 327, Waitangi Treaty to Tribunal, Dr. Hirini Ka. Thank you for joining us today. Kia ora. Uh, tēnā koe, Michaela. Uh, kia koutou ngā kato e ngā iwi. Uh, tēnā koutou, ko Higurangi te maunga, ko Waipu Tawa, ko Ngātipo te iwi, ko Hirini Kā ahau. Um, greetings everyone. I uh, thank you for your introduction, Michaela. Um, I feel very esteemed uh, now. <laughs> um, I'm a, I work here at the university. I um, have been a lecturer. I'm a researcher. I currently work in an administrative leadership role in the faculty called Kai Arahi, uh, working in the Māori and Pacific space for the faculty, uh, and it keeps me busy. In my big work as a researcher, I'm currently doing I'm undertaking a Marsden project on the Young Māori Party, so that's Apirarangata and Co at the um, turn of the 19th century, uh, and their particular forms of leadership and aspiration for Māori and their work, so that's keeping me busy for a few years as well. Good. That's really awesome. It's cool to hear what you're doing now. Cool, so I guess um, one of the main reasons for this was coming into the university. I had a couple of ideas, I guess, about the treaty, and you kind of come all through high school and you do history of New Zealand, and I wasn't going to do any New Zealand history in, in university, to be honest, because you kind of get told, oh, you learn everything in high school, and you learn the basic facts, and if they keep repeating those facts every single year, you think, well, I must know everything. Um, so I was actually encouraged by one of my friends to do 327 with you, and it completely changed my view on New Zealand history and the fact that there is more than just the three things that we're told in high school. So if you don't mind, would you mind possibly giving a brief overview of what happened at the signing, just in case there's anyone else like me who kind of thought they knew everything but didn't? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, no, look, and I certainly get this idea that, um, you know, we do learn everything at high school and then the, the basics, the, you know, what happened, how, where it happened, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because the signing in the North um, on the 6th of February is, you know, partly because, it, although it's extremely important and very interesting, is only a small part of the story as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the other signings are incredibly important. So, you know, the having some depth, um, some understanding about what connected the story is important as well. In terms of the signing, well, you know, it was messy. There's, there's a start. Probably really interestingly, for us history nerds anyway, there's <laughs> um, some of the quick background to it. To understand what happened at the signing, you kind of need to understand some of the dynamics that were happening in the British Empire at the time. For example, one particularly interesting strand that really uh, influences me is the influence of, say, Christian theology at the time in England. Groups like the Clapham sect, who um, led the the abolition of slavery in the empire. And again, this is all very complicated history. This isn't goodies and baddies. Um, There's a lot of grey in here. And what happened to the slaves who got released is um, not simple. They were driven by a particular understanding, a worldview, that included a kind of a respect and understanding for indigenous peoples and for their culture. So uh, one of their members was this guy, James Stevens, who worked for the um, colonial office in England. He drafted what we know as Lord Normanby's instructions for a treaty to be shaped and signed here. And he was strongly influenced, for example, by the idea that Māori might have a culture that had various elements to it, including things like a leadership structure, rangatira, rangatira tanga, uh, things like property rights. 
So with that understanding in mind, he's like, all right, when we work with these people, we need to think about those things. Again, it, it kind of cuts through that quite simple uh, ideas about where the British Empire was coming from, how evil it was. Hey, it certainly had it moments of extreme pure evil. But also there was nuance in there, there was challenge. Um, there were things worth thinking about. So he gets some instructions together, Hobson rocks up uh, to New Zealand not long before the 6th of February in his boat and um, with these instructions, let's do a treaty. Really, he's drafting it on board his ship up in Piafairangi, the Bay of Islands. Um, on the evening of the 4th, he gives it to Henry Williams and his son to, hey, can you translate this? You've got like six hours. <laughs> Henry wasn't even the good linguist, his brother William Williams was, but he was away. So Henry does this really quick and dirty kind of translation, influenced by the language he had. Now, again, not letting him too much off the hook because there is room to see he was aware of some of what he was doing um, and the implications of that. But at the same time, uh, you know, Rangatira Tanga was a word he was always going to use, complicated as it might be. He was going to use a lot of biblical imagery because he was a missionary. But there was also language Maya understood very well. They didn't understand abstract English philosophical concepts. Mm. Uh, they understood Maya, to be honest with you, <laughs> one of the things. So, you know, it was, it was just kind of what it was. Then the 5th of February, they have this extensive debate amongst the leadership, the Rangatira of the North. These chiefs come together, discuss, debate, discern. It's something they were really good at. It's something they did all the time. It's something they've been doing for a few decades um, up in the far north, up in the north. And then they sign on the 6th of February. One of the challenges is we don't have a whole lot of um, historical sources to kind of understand that story. We've got like Colenso's record, which is great, but... You know, it's not like there are, like today, a thousand media cameras pointing at the thing, a lot of podcasters, you know, it was, we're trying to piece this together. One of the great things is recently, though, Ngāpū's been able to tell its own story of the day, its own oral traditions, which are as rigorous as anything Colenso was going to write down. Um, and, as, and as biased and as impartial as anything Colenso was going to write. So, you know, now we're able to work together with both the oral tradition of Ngāpū and these written sources by the settlers, by the visitors, and kind of really pieced together a really rich idea of what was happening within the limitations of the time. Mm. So, see, you asked me a simple question, <laughs> a really long monologue. So, yeah. Well, I think this kind of sums up but this whole topic, though, is, is we think we're looking for simple answers, but it's not. It's so much more complicated. And I think one thing that really struck me was that we're told... Well, you know, 6th of February, that's the day. But then that was kind of just the Northern Tribes day. It then carried on down to the South, and it, it took a lot more than just one day to sign this thing. Yeah, look, I insert a joke about a certain iwi here, except they're the biggest iwi, so I won't say that. <laughs> uh, and my wife's from there, so I won't say that either, because the joke will be on me. But yeah, uh, you know, this is, again, again, I think one thing to consider here, right, is... We are still learning the story of the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, you know, we thought, oh, right, uh, Ruth Ross cracked this in the 70s, um, and Claudia Orange followed through, and it's all sorted, it's all written down. Whereas actually, we're always learning new ways of thinking about it, new sources are being revealed, new ways of thinking. Like I said, uh, Ngāpui, the tribunal incorporated Ngāpui's old traditions. That wasn't really... Certainly for Māori was accepted, certainly for Ngāpui. They always knew what their traditions were. But, you know, bringing it into the kind of the canon around the treaty gives it a whole nother perspective. And another way is iwi. These are iwi histories. So when I teach about uh, Te Tiriti Waitangi, I teach the Ngāti Poro perspective. One, because it's the true vision. Uh, <laughs> two, uh, because that's the perspective that I want to come from. I don't feel um, comfortable or confident talking about uh, a Ngāpui perspective. Oh, I just want to put so many inappropriate jokes <laughs> right now. I, I, so it did. It goes around the country. It's signed in different places around the country. Again, 6th of February is the Ngāpui Day. Good for them. Um, but the most important signing is uh, at the end of May and the 1st of June in Ngāpui. 
um, where it was perfected uh, in its execution and understanding. Its signing was so important. Uh, one of the signatories in Ngāti was uh, the Kaurō Te Rangi. Uh, my father um, was named after Kaurō Te Rangi. My father was born uh, in the mid-20th century. What it kind of says is, uh, we never forgot about Te Tiriti. Uh, we incorporated it into our old traditions, into our life, into our knowledge, and never gave up on it. You know, this idea that the treaty resurfaced in the 70s, it's like, I know we're good things. Uh, we always knew about it. We always understood it. We always had this concept of it being a sacred compact. We fought in World War One and World War II, uh, guided partly by this covenant, Te Tiriti. So, uh, and my father was named after it. So, you know, it's a long, deep history amongst iwi. Um, that Parker are starting to understand now. Mm. That's something really important to remember uh, that we have always known the story. Yeah, and I guess that kind of ties into the myth of everyone says New Zealand is such a multicultural country and that we do understand different cultures, but there's this huge disconnect I've found between between other cultures and understanding that Māori have always thought of this and always remembered it, and it's kind of us that have been the ones that have forgotten it and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it, it's uh, partly New Zealand, um, Aotearoa New Zealand, kind of rediscovering, re, remaking itself um, and as we go into this 21st century. Um, you know, in a range of really complicated dynamics there, but some, some really great ones too, including the importance of history for a nation. Mm. You know, our stories, our myths, our creation stories are incredibly important because they kind of inscribe the values um, that guide us. So New Zealand often talks about our sense of fairness. Well, where's that from? That comes from partly forgetting some important stories, deliberately almost, but also from remembering some. So. You know, it's not just history, right? It's about today's identity and what we take into the future. So re-understanding our traditions, our past, is incredibly important. Mm. Um, and, you know, and the complexity of biculturalism, of multiculturalism, of um, immigration. We get some really good answers from our past if we're willing to look hard enough. Are there any other myths that you might have come across from students when you were lecturing about the tree of Waitangi that you're kind of like, well, no, that's actually not true. Yeah, um, I just want to do enough with you. I'm sorry, it's like I'm meeting my little spot. Um, yeah, well, okay, so one one is that, um, for example, uh, Maria, this monolithic um, kind of culture, people, I think it's really important to understand the diversity of Maria because that really helps understand the story more. Oh yeah, a lot of myths, not to uh, um, go too far off on a tangent, but you know this idea of compulsory teaching of history in schools, I mean, one of the challenges there is to really maintain quality teaching. By that I mean, you know, engaged, entertaining for secondary school. And so uh, a lot of students did come in fairly, I know this, Mm. I'm bored by this, you know, and then that was, I get it, right? I get it. I I, a couple of students had studied um, the treaty like for like 10 years non-stop, they were saying. So, of course, they were like, oh, we're going to do that again. You know, and I, I really get that. So that was actually quite a biggie that they knew it all. And, and I really appreciated what students did know and did bring into the class. Um, you know, that's great. But really, them being able to think differently, think about, um, and particularly the more recent uh, manifestations, of the treaty as well it was a, cha- a good challenge, but one of the challenges is generally the students who did it were already in an interesting kind of space. They'd already thought one way or another generally about um, the nature of Aotearoa New Zealand, about transformation, about their own personal journeys. I just throw up in my mouth a little bit using the word journey, but you know all those kind of mm-hmm. they were that kind of student generally. So that, and they were great to engage with in that way. So kind of like preaching to the choir sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. I guess another thing, just to speak from my perspective of it, was this whole idea about there being one treaty. I think that's one of the myths I'd kind of grown up with, was that we have this kind of solid document. But realising that 
there's more than one. I think, isn't it, like, we don't even have the original document or something like that, and that there was more than one that even went around the country, and, yeah, I mean, can you speak to that a bit, or...? Yeah, yeah, I mean, and so, you know, obviously various versions are made. Now, this is problematised by certain quite insane groups of rednecks, so, you know, they have that true version, which proves whatever they wanted to prove. And again, you know, I was talking about the Nasbro version while it was signed by particular groups and, you know, various versions. And, and of course, we've got the version in Tereo and the English version, which have significant mm. um, textual differences between them, and reconciling those textual differences is a huge challenge. One of the problems, I think, to be honest, speaking as, a, um, as an historian, is lawyers. You know, apart from they should just, we should just get rid of them. Get rid of lawyers, but in a humane way, is you know the legalization of all this debate. So, and look, it is important, and of course, it's the, the framework that, that these things often operate in. But you know, which text has primacy with the, the language? Yeah. And of course, some really great scholars like Sean Carpenter, um, an anthropologist, was heavily involved in this. But as an historian, you know, one of the one of the things is to consider context, is to consider meaning that we inscribe and ascribe to documents over over the course of our life as as a people. So, you know, these things evolve, these things move. So, you know, sometimes the tiny little details that people like to obsess about, I think, uh, can be lost in context. So, for example, the course that you did and enjoyed so much, I'm sure. Oh, um, right. oh thank you. <laughs> I give you the five bucks now or later, yeah. later, later on, just in an envelope. It was was really uh, about a, a kind of a Māori uh, view of the history of this land with fertility as a central kind of theme or motif. But, you know, it's very hard to understand the texts of the treaty without understanding the context that they were received in. Really? So, you know, and, and in some ways it's not possible, whereas the lawyers just, oh, let's fixate on these few words now. You know, not to dumb it down, not to say that the text isn't again incredibly important. You, we need to think about, you know, the wider context. Some things would have happened anyway. Some things because greed was the thing, because empire was a thing. Treaty or no treaty, any look around. But that we did it, um, it does, it gives us a kind of anchor to, to work on. And and that's where, so the guarantee of rangatiratanga as opposed to a session of sovereignty. Yeah, incredibly important. But more important, you know, nowadays, when Pākehā are more willing to kind of grasp the, the meaning of that, you know, as opposed to just relying on the words themselves to have the power. Yeah. So, you know, this is more like a, a movement within a context than, than you know, fixating certain specifics. But specifics do make up the story over time. That was a long answer. <laughs> we just rambled around, so yeah. Really That's what the classes were like, basically. <laughs> she's not surprised (laughs) yeah no I mean it's so good and I think context is something that we as historians learn to appreciate but something that I think I don't know before I started really getting into history you don't really think about the context back then because you're kind of looking back with hindsight whereas I mean even I did um, 7-Eleven with Jonathan Scott last year discovering and and looking deeper into the fact that this was an oral culture at the time. And so even understanding the different worldviews of the British were coming in and kind of being like, well, for something to be legal for us, it has to be written down. But the Maori didn't even have a written language at the time. So kind of reconciling that and looking more into the context of that as well and understanding what implications that might have had at that time as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and you know, that's a great thing about history. It's, it's you know, you're able to bring in various thoughts from various disciplines, various uh, methodologies, you know, to, to really analyse. You're not kind of stuck within one frame or, or limited to a set of big words that mm. you have to use. You can, and you're not fixated on detail because you can look at it. And you know, you know what you don't know. You know, you know where your imagination has to kind of work yeah. in the gaps there to try and understand. Um, yeah, that's, mm. that's the fun. I just want to turn now to teaching the treaty in a university context because yeah. I moved, we've talked a bit about what it's like in high school and you've mentioned that you've had students who've said, I've learned about it for 10 years, surely there mustn't be um, there mustn't be anything else that I don't know. Is there a difference, like do you think that there's more freedom teaching it in a university context or do you think it's just a different perspective that 
I don't know, like, I, I mean, I don't even know if high school teachers are bound by what they must teach or mustn't teach. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one of the challenges of secondary school is they, um, they actually have quite a broad brief that they can work to, but, you know, lack of resources um, is, a, is a really big challenge. So, you know, again, I think that's one driver to why European history has been so popular, because you can pull out a whole bunch of sexy, you know, Hollywood movies or whatever yeah. to keep the... Yeah. And, and, you know, it just has that feel of scale and stuff, whereas, you know, New Zealand, um, particularly Māori history, is kind of limited in the support you can receive in the flat out as a teacher, you know, so mm-hmm. it becomes a bit of tune after a while. Plus, I think, um, still a bit of fear around, um, you know, am I going to get a Hobson's Pledge kind of, you know, backlash about all that kind of... Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't really given ourselves permission as a country yet to, to say, look, it's fine to talk about these things. And it's also fine not to know everything and all that kind of... And it's safe to talk about European history. And it's safe to talk about American history because, you know, at the end of the day, who cares? Who cares what happens in Europe? Because, oh, that's absolutely fascinating, but it doesn't impact us. I don't really care. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of... Whereas if we're talking about New Zealand history, it's scary mm-hmm. because... You talk about it in the classroom, you step out the door, you're dealing with the consequences of it. You've got to live that history out. If this is a living, this explains why we see what we see on the news. Now, you know, so does European, so does American history. In some contexts, you know, Trump is a product of history that impacts us, mm. especially with the nuke stuff flying. We'll be all glowing with the history, you know, um, nuclear history. But this is difficult history, New Zealand history, because, you know, racism alone is a product of our ongoing history of colonisation. So, and the inequalities, disparities now come from Māori. Um, so it's hard to talk about. It becomes immediate. And so it's difficult. Well, university is great, partly because we kind of, students generally, you know, I hope, and, and I do get the sense kind of know that they're going to be challenged intellectually. Mm. You know, you get yeah. some who obviously don't want to have that kind of discussion, but, you know, you're in the wrong place, so that's right. But generally, you know, pretty open, pretty much getting it on a constant basis, having their kind of thoughts challenged, so, you know, quite open to it. Whereas, again, at school, you're kind of like, what am I playing today after school and what's for lunch? Yeah. You know, it's a different kind of Absolutely. process. Whereas you're choosing to come here to engage intellectually mm. and get see get degrees. And, and also, we've got the amazing colleagues here. Mm. You know, this this university, this University of Auckland History Department, you know, produced Judith Binney, and James Belch has been here, Keith Sorensen, Keith Sinclair, Claudia Orange. You know, this history we're talking about came out of this department. Mm. So, you know, we go into it with some confidence. Aroha Harris, tribunal member, mm. who works amazing, she's here. So, you know, we're the ones who, not me, we as in I'm just claiming membership of this game. I'm I'm unpatched. I'm like a I'm like a yeah, I'm I'm a prospect. Well you're an esteemed lecturer. I'm an esteemed oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure you're just taking the piss when you said that. Um <laughs> we, you know, we, we have um you know, are able to write the history too. And it's great, and it's great working with school teachers who do an amazing job. I think the good thing is over time we develop more resources, we mm. get better at this as a country having this kind of discussion. It's only going to get easier as long as we hold our confidence um, and don't give in to that kind of negativity, really, that, mm. that floats around out there. But it doesn't get much hold anymore. So, yeah. You should just like say cut at some stage. It just That's enough on it. Just cut and I'll just stop and move on. So, no, it's yeah, good. Yeah. It's good. Have you always had positive feedback at the end of the course? Or do you feel like, I don't know, has there ever been. Oh, I had one student say too many Ngāpui jokes. Um, <laughs> I but they I were, that was when I was taking They were obviously drunk. So. <laughs> Ngāpui jokes are my meme. Um, the, because I love them and respect them, especially because they're so big and scary. Um, uh, one of the problems here is the nature of feedback. So we do these online feedback mm. things and 
really only students who want to fill them in, which mostly mean it's very positive with a couple of haters. So, and man, I just, I get like 98% students love it and I fixate on the 2% we all do. It's like, yeah. that's the power you have over our students. Use it <laughs> wisely. You, we go away and cry when you can't see us. Um, it has been really good. I, I've actually heard, I've got a couple of feedback loops. So I was at this party with this, this girl who was at the thing and she was saying she didn't like it but you know I do, and so interestingly any um, criticism or, or kind of negative critique I never really got it now there's a range of these there's a power dynamic in the classroom you know the students aren't stupid and, and that's a bit unfortunate that you know it, because of the kind of grade game we play students don't want to confront you because you know they're worried about their education and that's that's a real shame in a lot of ways because you know and it's a, it's a kind of discussion I'd encourage um, for students to really share because it helps, it'll really help me learn. Um, but again, generally, students choose to sign up. The students who do sign up mm. um, often are there to, because they want to learn, because they want to engage. So no, generally the feedback was good, well, it was, was positive, that they learned a lot. Yeah, again, it was, it's a new generation of um, New Zealand in a lot of ways because again, not many money at the University of Auckland because of our institutional barriers, institutionalized racism, things like that. But it is, we are rapidly changing from a generation ago. I think New Zealand does now grow up with a much greater kind of, even even if it's a kind of subconscious awareness of, of some of these issues, because you can't live in Auckland, for example, and live that monocultural life you could have a generation ago. You, you have to negotiate culturally in schools and shops and all sorts of spaces and places in a lot of ways so you know we're a different kind of mix and even the media is a lot more aware it can still do some amazingly dumb things but you know there's just really the tone of our conversation especially if you compare us to somewhere like uh, america which is still completely assimilationist still completely blind particularly to indigenous people australia now, we don't get into that game of, you know, playing who gets the gold medal and racism, who gets the silver medal, but we are very different. So I think, you know, you could, I was really optimistic. I could, I think I could see all that kind of coming through in some fantastic students who, you know, I thought can really change the world with these kind of attitudes that they had. It was great. Mm. I think, yeah, kind of just going back to you talking about how it's very, it's, it's not like it's America or it's, it's not like it's medieval European history. Like, I guess the one thing that really struck me, particularly about this course, but also just New Zealand history, was, was the fact that it's not distant. I remember you talking about the history of Auckland, and I've never known about the history of Auckland, but now every time I'm walking past Mission Bay or anywhere along that line, basically, and just being like, just remembering all the stories that you've spoken about that I'd never heard of before, it, it does connect you to your country, I think, a bit more. And, and maybe that's, a part of it is that it is or should be ingrained in who we are and yeah one thing that really struck me as well was I've never had a course not bagging any of the other courses but I've never had a course where I've had a lecturer deliver it with such passion in the sense of you could tell that it was a part of you and you could tell that it, it meant a lot and it was important it wasn't just facts so yeah I guess that kind of helped me coming from basic knowledge, I guess is what you'd say. Mm-hmm. Understand it a lot more and see the relevance of it. Students don't really understand how relevant it is to now because we have grown up with all of these myths and everything. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was... Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. That, that's, yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> There's another five bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna be rich by the yeah, yeah. <laughs> And did I tell you how much I'm charging you for this interview? <laughs> It'll just take a discount off the bill. <laughs> A couple of us from the history department last year went down to the New Historians Conference down in Wellington and one of the speakers there really caught me actually, just the way he was talking about things was um, Dr. Monty Suta. Um, he was really talking about the critical need for us, everyone, I guess, to understand the importance of history. I mean, we've been talking about this already for the past however long we've been talking. <laughs> but one way that he emphasised that we could bridge the gap was the learning of today and, and the importance of not just reading things in translation. I mean, we learn about that in all of our courses, is that if you're doing medieval history, you have to learn Latin, or if you're doing Greek history, you have to learn Greek, because it's, it's learning about it in its own culture and understanding the implications that, that come behind all of the words. 
Is there anything that that you would suggest, or do you agree with with that would be one of the most important things that we can do as historians in understanding New Zealand history, or even now in a contemporary context, being able to read? I mean, I remember you talking about in this is very long winded, sorry, but I remember mm. you talking about um in class that there were all these newspapers from from the time, but nobody read them because nobody could understand them. And that's ignoring an entire other perspective of these events that happened. So I guess my question would be, do you agree with the importance of learning today, or is there anything else that you would add to that that would be important for us as students to learn to help increase the knowledge of, of the treaty and the importance of it now? Sure. Sure. Well, of course, um, Monty is an amazing historian and always correct, not only because he's a nice bro, but um, <laughs> uh, also he, he, he's kind of set the standard with his uh, Māori Battalion histories in terms of how to work with Iwi. Anyway, he's just, just an amazing historian. Yeah, learning te reo is incredibly important because, yes, for the obvious practical reason that you can access a huge range of ways of understanding New Zealand history. Now, that's not just my history, because if you go through those newspapers, which there are thousands of pages of all in Te Reo, they'll have stories about, they have ads for soap um, in Te Reo. Now, if you're going to study, say, advertising culture um, in New Zealand, you know, these ads for soap are, are things you can learn. There's a Māori... And, and it's not just the data, it's a kind of the, the worldview, a way of looking at soap uh, from a Māori perspective, a way of looking at any particular issue happening in society, um, war, life, death, peace, you know, all of it, from a Māori perspective. So that's really important for starters. Learning the language too, learning te reo Māori, because of the nature of te reo Māori. It's not like some European languages, and they're quite complex kind of technical reasons, including it got kind of um, isolated over its development. So where English solved the issue of interaction with new ideas by just borrowing from other languages. So, you know, there's like yeah. the French and German stuff like that. Which is great, it's a great answer. Māori couldn't do the same because it didn't have other uh, to borrow from. So um, Te Reo Māori is loaded with a kind of um, cultural values, insights, worldview within the language in a way that, say, English isn't. Not saying it's better, it's just a different kind mm. of language construction. Talk to the linguists and you've got to understand. <laughs> what that means is when you learn Te Reo Māori, you learn the worldview at the same time. You can't kind of not because the language is so tied to the way of seeing things. Whereas again, English is very prosaic, you know, it, it doesn't, it's got other ways of doing that process. So in learning, you're not just picking up a language, you're not just picking up those technical skills to, to read those documents, you're learning a way of thinking about things. Now, uh, see, you see, I just kind of pause there, like, hold on listeners, this is going to take ages, but <laughs> um, what that is also about is if you're a citizen, if you're if you're it's not just a legal citizen, if you're if you're part of this land, if you're if you're Māori, if you're Pākehā, if you're Chinese, if you're Thai, if you're you know, Samoan, and you're you're claiming some kind of connection to this land, then it's how you see the world. If you're going to go and study medieval English history, which is great, we should study everything. Apirangata is the greatest person ever. Um, studied classics and um, English history and you know whole Shakespeare. There's a whole generation who love Shakespeare um, because Shakespeare is amazing. Of don't matter what culture from, and they love studying the Bible because that's an amazing book. You know they just they didn't limit themselves, right? Mm. But they read those things from a context that's unique to this land. So if you're going to study you know medieval English history, nothing to stop you from also being informed by a Māori worldview. Why do we have to see everything through a European lens? Mm. You know, just because it's English doesn't mean you're going to only see it through an English lens, right? We don't do that to anything else. So so that engagement, so learning te reo will help New Zealanders engage with the entire world, with science, mm. with philosophy, with religion, with anything. Um, and that's kind of coming through. Bear with me. I was in an English supermarket in December, 
and I went to the wine section because I was lost. I was looking for something more virtuous. <laughs> and um, they had 10 different types of New Zealand wine. Nine of the brands had Māori branding, either names or imagery. I think I Montana was anyone that didn't. That's because the wine companies, and right, this is on the shelf, right? I'm not talking theoretically here. This is the New Zealand wine companies and wines are huge product in New Zealand, mm. saying, how can we sell our wine? Because there's like tons of Aussie wines too. Yeah. Weirdly, a lot of whom are starting to kind of incorporate indigenous Australian imagery too, but in a much crappier way. <laughs> um, how do we differentiate? How do we say New Zealand wine is good stuff because, because they're kind of selling it through this Māori image. Now, sounds a bit cheap and nasty, but some of the wine companies work pretty hard with iwi to make sure there's a thing. Some of the wine companies aren't iwi companies. They were getting into, um, you know, horticulture. This is our unique kind of value contribution to the world. If we don't just want to be some kind of weird, generic global citizens that just float on a planet and float off somewhere afterwards, if we want to ground ourselves, have a Tsudanga Waiwai place to stand from, then we should all learn the real anyway, regardless of what we're doing, because it's the thing that will anchor us in an increasingly crazy, globalised context. Mm. Well, we're going to end up in Shanghai or, or London or, you know, that's cool. It doesn't matter, even if we live virtually. But what's our perspective? And so there's the thing, right? There's why we should do it. Um, not just for practical reasons, to be better historians, because there's a, certainly a thing there. But so when we rock up to these historian conferences in London or Shanghai or wherever, we bring a perspective that's unique, mm. that's grounded, that's deep, that's meaningful, that engages. So that's the longest answer ever. <laughs> yes, for the win. See, <laughs> see what she had to put up with? It was a long semester. <laughs> no, it wasn't. So I guess, in your opinion, do you think making learning te reo now compulsory is the answer to this? Or do you think people should want to do it out of a desire? Or I, I don't know, yeah, what, yeah. what's your opinion? Oh, no, I, I'm not a fan of compulsion, partly because quality is hard. There's a practicality at this stage. If we make it compulsory, we will get some low quality teaching and then we'll have generation kind of put off, you know. Um, I, I don't think we need to. I, it's happening. So we, I offered last semester as part of my work a course for academics in this faculty. Mm -hmm. There are 220 of them. I sent out an email, hey, and I left it of course quite late because I'm often very disorganised. I sent out this email quite late and I was like, I'm offering this course. And then I was going to leave and go home and I was like, oh, look, we had, we had like 30 spots. I was like, if we get 10, 12, that'll, that'll be enough. I kind of leave. Someone turns up. I start talking rubbish, as you can hear I do. I'm sitting there and I start getting these emails come in. Like within 20 seconds. The course is filled up in, I think it was, 14 minutes. And then they just didn't stop. I had to email them and say, that's it. <laughs> Sorry, up? yeah. Because I, I hadn't worked out, like, what if it's oversubscribed? Because I didn't know. And, like, people, and then I was getting all these angry emails, like, why, why did I miss out? Like, yeah, then the next few days, like, it wasn't my fault I didn't get the emails. Like, oh, sorry, guys. Um, and a lot of anger. But, you know, there was just, and for this semester, we've got, like, 65 expressions of interest. There's just no, and that's only because a lot of them just can't do the time and stuff. Uh, Up at AUT, there are hundreds on uh, the waiting list. You know, um we don't need to make it compulsory. It's becoming, it's just a thing. It's yeah. like, why wouldn't we? Yeah. And, and again, I don't think it's, yeah, it'll help professionally, right? You want a job with, with Auckland Council or central government, well, you've got to be able to answer a couple of questions around your ability to engage. And I'm not just saying like, oh, I think there's a couple of, not like the Prime Minister just trying to fake your way through the articles. You've actually got, or who can't count to 10 and 30, just saying, um, you've got to be able to love labour. You've got to be able to um, actually. I do kind of love labour, so that's awkward. We'll just leave that there. Um, you've got to be able to engage because your competitors did the real course, and you know, hey, they're just going to get ahead of you mm. because because it's not just about the real. It's about your ability to engage substantively mm. with other cultures. With you want a job in Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade? Well, you know, it all actually helps because it says. You put in the effort to engage with the other mm. cultures. You can, anyway. Yeah. 
Yep, so we don't need compulsion, but um, having said that, we do need the government to be strategic, to invest in the right places, we need institutions to get behind it. Mm. And the the reality is, for Māori, only about 80% affluent in Te Reo Māori, while it's great to see Pākehā, particularly middle-class Pākehā, right, um, get on board with this, there are still some really significant challenges. Te Reo Māori could die, there are scary issues around appropriation, you know, the question soon will be, well, whose language is it? And then Māori lose control of our own language, of our culture. You know, but hey, there are worse problems because Pākehā want to, this is the first time Pākehā have ever really want to engage with our culture on any significant level. So that's a good problem to have. So we, and I'm pretty confident we can resolve it. So there. It was pure, I don't know, no way ending there. Just, no, it's good. I guess... Because my mum's living today at the Jones. moment, out of AUT as Jones. well, kind of, because my dad's a lecturer there, so he was oh, yeah. getting her into there and everything. But she's even just just talked about how useful it is, like how you're saying, like not just for a professional side of stuff, but she's a, um, she teaches people how to drive trucks. But um, when she's doing the, the truck driving... I'd love to hear that for some road rage. But even just going around to all the different yards and everything, and she's using it. She's seeing a, a use for it, where it's not just another thing that you learn, or it's not just, like, I feel like education, it's become this thing where it's like, you just want to learn facts, or you just, you need to know this in order to get a job, but actually seeing a practical use for it, and she loves using it. I was down at the um, conference in Waikato, and she came down to watch me speak, as moms do. But one of the ladies who introduced the whole session in Maui, my mum went up to afterwards, and managed, after doing one semester, to have this conversation. And she was just so stoked that she was able to do it and able to connect with this person and again the lady was stoked as well and helped her along when she stumbled so yeah it's, it was really cool to see that and kind of see the product of that that there's another side of education that's not just yeah, oh yeah, we have yeah. to do this to get what, a job what, but what money can i get for this kind yeah of story, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I don't know why we say that in history for this <laughs> yeah, <then laughs> yeah would you like fries with that historical uh thesis <laughs> <clears throat> well, you know, not even to, and again, some of this is, we don't really know what's happening because we're in it. You know, like in 20 years from now, there's going to be some great history about what's currently happening in New Zealand, yeah. but it's hard at the moment. But, you know, in some ways too, this is a full park is about identity. And, and I mean really profound, you know, spirituality, because, you know, with the religion kind of losing its way, perhaps, with, with, the population with meaning the All Blacks got sold to AIG, you know, and they're just a corp another corporate brand now. Those things that are previous generations of New Zealanders could kind of grasp institutions, believe in, hold on to, as they dissipate around the Western world, you know, people people need those things. Like they're pretty, you know, we we told ourselves we didn't. We just need new flash TVs and better cars, but actually, we need these things. So the why of things. And, you know, Māori offers a why of things to New Zealand. So in, a, in a way that's actually like, yeah, okay, that sounds pretty solid to me. So, you know, that's that's cool. That's cool that, you know, Pākehā feel that they can belong here through that and find meaningful lives. In America, it's, there's a tragedy around, you can cut this out, but around opioid, <laughs> opioid addiction, huge rates of suicide amongst middle-aged white men in the Midwest, like just huge rates. What, some of the research indicates it's because of purposelessness. Yeah, I've got my car and my pool and my what is, but I don't know why I'm here anymore. You know, and it, and it tied to some really terrible addiction that was allowed to happen and thrive. But, you know, we can avoid that even. And again, in America, because they're craziness, you know, they're not... When they do engage with indigenous people, it's really bad appropriation. You know, we your woods and you know, name my team after you. Whereas here we can do it in a pretty solid way. So that, and again, that's kind of something, not only is good for us, but something we can actually offer the world. Like, hey, here's a way, Western world, of doing this properly and respectfully and with depth. Just two more things that I guess I want to cover. Sure. Is with Waitangi Day yesterday, can you possibly speak to, has there been a difference in the way it's been commemorated? Have you seen it change over time? Is, is there greater appreciation for the full context of it? Or do you feel like there's not much change? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, again, I you know one of the challenges is we do have bubbles. So like I'm on Twitter, and uh, my Twitter bubble is kind of liberal, you know, um, fairly wealthy-ish, middle classish, you know, that kind of buzz. So whereas I don't go on Facebook because that's the insane bubble with all my relations on it. You know, so so it kind of depends who you talk to. And look, I know there's a kind of a redneck bubble somewhere floating around that you know the Don Brash crowd. But it does seem to me, it's it's interesting. It seems a lot more kind of natural now. Like Hawaiian Waititi, so Waipareira runs uh, Waitangi Waititi, get a huge crowd, a very uh, multi-ethnic um, crowd in attendance because it's a fun day. You know, it's a it um, they just kind of want to come and chill. If you go up to Waitangi, it is lovely. You know, of course they highlight you know the Brian Tamaki audience. Um, but actually, it's a really super chilled day. Particularly, they do this watermelon thing. It's a half a watermelon. They scoop it out and they put it back in with ice cream. It's oh. like, that is Waitangi Day right there. Um, deliciousness and multicultural. Like, I don't know if Marty had the, the watermelon or the ice cream. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. well, if it's vanilla, it probably makes sense. It really wouldn't. Um, anyway, it, it's, you know, it, it's almost like it's becoming a really appreciated part of a kind of a national identity and you know how problematic both those kind of ideas are but as opposed to you know again 10 years ago when things were a lot more a lot more tension i think we're getting used to the tension partly because we understand it better now mm. you know because everyone's done 10 years of whatever on a treaty at school now while there's a lot left to learn and while the quality might be what or whatnot it is they're still like, okay, I genuinely get why that happens. I get why those Māori are looking angry because, well, they should be. Mm. You know, they should be, and fair enough. And I get why, you know, as opposed to 10, 20 years ago, I was like, why are they Māori so angry? Why don't, you know, we don't, education is, mm. education brings knowledge, which empowers us all, which takes the, the heat out and lets the light in. So I think it's just a very different kind of discourse in New Zealand now. Um, and of course, we do look around the world, man, we look like the adults in the room, like compared to America or something at the moment in particular. And we should, you know, we should be kind of proud of some of the things we've been able to do, even though it's a long way to go. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of stuff under the hood that still really needs, really needs fixing. Um, health, crime, you know, there's some terrible things happening still. But the day itself, I think, yeah. This idea we're maturing as a nation is about as simplistic as, you know, our progressive, we're always getting mm. better, but not always inappropriate in that we're getting to understand ourselves better as a nation, perhaps, and that history, 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 mm. you know? We can sociologize it, we can legalize it, we can do all that, but if you know your stories, yeah. you know where you're coming from, it really helps unpack it. So, yeah, I think it's better. I guess that's the whole purpose behind this blog and podcast as well is, is that I mean history is social memory and I've had so many people say to me like oh why are you studying history is nothing nothing to it it's not important but it's it's totally how we orient ourselves in today and how we do while we might not be progressing as such a um, yeah. it, it does help us I think understand ourselves and others better and have a greater perspective of what happened I guess or a, or a new perspective. I'm not sure how you describe it. Oh, look, um, and the skills you learn in history are just so, they're invaluable. They just, you can apply them in a whole range of, you can analyse things. Mm. Because you can bring a lot of things to bear to it, you can understand yeah. content. It's, but yeah, it's not just in that big national picture, but in any kind of um, place, it's just, a, you get some mean skills. Um, with history, just for history plug. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 study yeah, history. Yeah. Hashtag yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, I guess I just wanted to finish off with this kind of. Is there any books or articles or anything that comes to mind that you would suggest for people who may not know much about it or do want to know a bit more that they could go read? I know the university has access to so many things online, but is there anything in particular that you would sure. suggest? Sure, for the treaty itself, um, Claudia Orange's work is still the, the gold standard. Either the Treaty of Waitangi or the, the illustrated version, which is the easy to access one, really, mm -hmm. kind of a shorter version with pictures. Um, 
Um, <laughs> some good government websites. So Te Ara is always great. You know, extremely credible, well thought out, ac- accurate in terms of, you know, the fact-checking. So Te Ara is always very good. And there's a couple of other Ministry of Culture and Heritage sites as well that are, that are good. Interactive, History to You, there's some, just some good New Zealand. So, and plus with some good multimedia stuff tied in too, which, you know, helps literally illustrate, you know, yeah. helps your imagination kind of kickstart history of it all. And in terms of my history, I think Aroha Harris and Judith Binney and Co's Athlanism's Tamita Whenua, they're bringing out, there's a, they're bringing out a, a, a more of the tourist version soon, but that's a great kind of way into um, uh, kind of this big Māori history as well. And if you're feeling you want to get a little bit angry about things, Ranginui Walker's Kawhawa Tori Mata is always um, fantastic read because it's kind of the brutal history of New Zealand which again is not the only history and not the full history but he's never kind of claiming it to be you know it's necessary to I think at times while we can do the kumbaya of history while we can you know embrace this change there's still a lot of pain hurt ongoing so we need to know that mm-hmm. so there's always a place for that as well but yeah just be careful online because there's a lot of cray cray stuff out there too way that just well, you know, it can pretty easily lead you down a, a kind of rabbit hole. So, again, you know, things like university, people accuse us of all sorts of things, left wing bias and stuff, but rigor. You know, yeah, because of the nature of these places, because of what you've got to go through, you don't get away with anything lightly. So, you know, everything we do gets tested rigorously against the evidence. So, I'm happy with that. So, most of all, enroll at the University of Auburn <laughs> in history. And do history through Yeah, 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 yeah. And now I was teaching it as much. It's credible again, um, <laughs> even if she is an alcoholic. That's all right. Um, there's ways around it. Uh, maybe I should release a list of jokes you can think about. Science. <laughs> Love alcoholic. Love my wife's people. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I guess that's everything that I have. Is there anything else that you? No. Well, thank, thank you for that, and I really appreciate the uh, energy you put into this and. Um, you know, it, it's great to see this kind of uh, passion to inform, to share, so good. Awesome. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. <laughs>